Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with the founder of Engineers Without Borders, Bernard Amade. Hey, Bernard. Hey, how are you, Aaron? I'm doing great and uh, really looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I do too. Dr. Bernard Amade is a distinguished professor and professor of civil engineering at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He received his PhD in 1982 from the University of California at Berkeley. Dr. Amade is the founding director of the Mortenson Center in Engineering for Developing Communities. He is also the founding president of Engineers Without Borders USA and the co-founder of the Engineers Without Borders International Network. Among other distinctions, and the list is long. I've got several pages here. No, you don't have to go through. Like <laughs> Doctor, no, 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 no. Doctor Amade is an elected member of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering and the National Academy of Construction. He is also an elected senior Ashoka Fellow. Doctor Amade holds seven honorary doctoral degrees from UMass Lowell, Carroll College, Clarkson, Drexel, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, the Technion in Israel, and SUNY ESF. In 2013 and 2014, Dr. Amade served as a science envoy to Pakistan and Nepal for the United States Department of State. And he also holds a commercial pilot license. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll talk about that too yeah, at some point, Bernard. But uh, you know, what, what has struck me um, in learning a bit more about you and your, your background from mm -hmm. a professional and academic standpoint, and, and having been aware of your work with Engineers Without Borders for many years now, um, is that we're not only going to be talking about technical and uh, linear, so to speak, oh. items today. We're going to actually be talking a lot about holistic, interconnected, and even um, one might say spiritual Absolutely. topics. Absolutely. I mean, Aaron, good point. Um, you know, I, I tell everyone, if all the problems in the world were technical, we would have solved them by now. Yeah. I think we know how to do it from a technical point of view. I think what we are lacking is really the, the more inner dimension of human beings. How do we essentially address the global issues that we are facing today? Not with new tech, new AI, new whatever you are saying, that it has to do with um, the inner work of our institutions, the inner work of decision makers. Um, there's a great quote from um, a mystic of Meister Eckhart of the 13th century, I guess who um, I'm going to paraphrase, who say that essentially the outer work uh, cannot be great if the inner work is small. And so the question is, what's the inner work of our institutions today, looking at what they do from an external point of view? And I can really question about the lack of inner work, right? So for us engineers, and scientists usually is coming up with some new theories and new technology and what are you. That's probably the last thing we need on our planet today. It's more um, how do we um, um, create more of an inner work that translates into a better planet? Yeah. 
Well, and, and obviously right now, so many people are focused on the development of technology, um, whether it's, it's in the digital realm or other types of applied or appropriate energy technologies or whatever else is being deployed around the world right now. And, and I'm just, I'm wondering, it doesn't seem from my perspective that the inner work is uh, a part of that milieu for most folks engaged in that kind of work. And I'm wondering, Bernard, from your perspective, how might we look to bring that inner work more into the mainstream and more into the fore of the consciousness of folks in a very technical society? And that's a good remark and a really good question. I don't really have an answer to that, to that question. But um, look at uh, the educational system that we are all exposed to, starting, say, at the age of six all the way to 18. It's, it's, we don't talk about inner work at all. Mm. We don't talk, I mean, it's not part of the discussion. It's about doing this, doing that, getting a good job, making good money, or whatever you have, um, helping the economy, whatever you but what about the inner dimension of the decision makers? And where do you learn that? I think that um, what we need are wisdom schools almost, mm. where wisdom is part of, um, of, part of the education. Um, you know, somewhere as you, it's easier to uh, speak a foreign language when you learn it early on in life. Well, what about, you know, uh, teaching young kids about uh, wisdom, about um, the inner dimension? I'm not talking about religion here. We're talking about rediscovering what we are as human beings, introducing sustainability as early as possible, introducing um, uh, healthy mind, healthy body, as early as possible. So it should be part of, my opinion, should be part of the education. And it's likely that, like a foreign language, um, essentially the kids, and we will remember that as we move into teenage years and ad adulthood. Of course we make mistakes, that's not a, that's part of the equation. But uh, being able to get back uh, in-house, I mean I was, and an analogy that crosses my mind is that um, I read somewhere that in the old days, um, uh, people in Midwest would go out during the tornado season, hurricane season or tornado season. The farmers would attach themselves with a, a rope to the house. So in case they were stuck out there, they could go back home. So I, I like that metaphor because what is that rope? Mm that we have when we deal with, especially we deal with complex issues in life. You know, we all deal with that. What is that rope that brings us back home? Because home is where we want to be. We want to be in a safe place. And whatever that safe place is, is certainly different for you and me. But what is it that we have that brings us back home? Oh, wow. What is that life string, life, uh, they call it the life, um, saving rope that brings you back home when poop hits the fan. You know, you're yeah. in the middle of it, you cannot control it, and the fan is spinning faster and faster. How do you go back home? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems to me that, and this is obviously a, a big part of the work that we're doing at the Why on Earth community, that community building and having those connections, those human connections, while we're also cultivating our own inner lives, inner dimensions uh, is necessary. Maybe there are some other things as well, but it seems like those two, community and the cultivation of the inner 
experience is, is critical, Absolutely. right? You know, the term community comes from the Latin, I read about it, and says it's about the gift of being together. Yeah. So you can be together with a group of people. If it's not a gift, don't stay there. It's not a community, right? Yeah. And we are talking about education in general. You know, universities were created thousand years ago, give or take, for young people to find a place in the universe. Yeah. Is that the mission of our universities today? It is not. Right. Find, finding your place in the universe, mostly at the time, young men. But today, where do you find your place in the universe today? You probably don't. You know, I've been at the university for 40 years teaching. I'm almost done here at the end of this semester. I don't think that the mission of the University of Colorado is to find, <laughs> for young people to find their place in the universe. Not just University of Colorado, of course, but other universities. So what's that mission? I mean, it's, to me, the university should be a place where you discover yourself, you know. Um, uh, we talked about it before, but this idea of, um, I ask my students usually um, that question, what's your mission statement? What's the gift that you only can give to the rest of the world? And are you a loose cannonball in the ocean of life, moving around left and right there? Or do you have, you know, your gift? Uh, of course, that the answer is what is your gift may change over time as you grow up and discover essentially who you are. But to me, it's, it's an important question. What's your mission statement? Mm. Um, I, I reflected a lot on that. I, initially, my mission statement was long. <laughs> you know, and I just summarize it with one word, three words. I mean, to be of service, <laughs> four words actually. To be of service. Mm. That's it. So. You know, so I think finding your mission statement, your gift, is should be an outcome of any form of education. That's so beautiful. And so uh, at the end of high school, yeah. we ask you that last homework assignment. Mm. Okay, start all over again. At the end of four years of college, okay, what do you think? Are you better off today? Do you know who you are? And the answer may be no, which is perfectly fine too. Mm -hmm. um, it takes a lifetime, for some people, many lifetimes to find out who they are, but um, what's your mission statement? What's your gift that you only can give to the rest of the planet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so important and and really beautiful to engage in that inquiry. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, we were talking recently about the fact that the university, as originally conceived many, many centuries ago, was conceived by mystics. You sort of just alluded sure. to this a few minutes ago. And, and I'm, I'm curious, in your opinion, what was it that was going on in the 11th, the 12th, the 13th centuries uh, in Europe as that connection with the Middle East had come alive again? And there, were, there was something so special in those times that it seems got really quite confused and jumbled in the ensuing centuries. Share with us a little, because I know this is something you've been I'm, exploring I'm, I'm been a lot. I'm really interested about the mystics of mm. 11, 12, 13th century there. And uh, it's my um, mentor, Matthew Fox, I, um, mm. who has written, what, 30, 40 books, essentially on the mystics. and. Um, my life changed completely when I met him in the late 1990s. And um, 
really discovering a bunch of individuals, men and women, talking Meister Eckhart, San Francisco of Assisi, uh, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, uh, Julian of Norwich, and all those individuals, all those eclectic people, Thomas Aquinas, another one. Um, they were just rediscovering this concept of awe, you know. Um, and to me, the wow—I mean, I call it the wow factor. Um, it was at that time, and Matthew Fox has a beautiful book on it, on original blessing instead of original sin. Wow! Mm-hmm. Wow! Of course, you don't bring too many people to church on Sunday with mm-hmm. with that uh, marketing uh, tagline, but um, <laughs> um, original blessing—it's such a positive way of looking at at how we stand as human beings in the universe, right? And that lasted about two, three hundred years, and then actually the plague came right, stopped the whole thing, pretty much. Yeah. Um, this concept of which, you know, blessing, and after that was, you know, as you know today, sin and guilt and all that nonsense that you see, that you see in the world. But rediscovering this concept of um, the wow factor, right? Uh, uh, to, uh, to me, good engineering is an engineering where you can look at it and say, wow. Mm. Um, if you look at um, any uh, practices, if the practice you do, not just engineering, doesn't give you a sense of wow, of yeah. awe and wonder. Mm. And I think that what the mystics essentially helped us rediscover is this concept of awe and wonder. Awe, awe being in awe and wondering about creation. Right? Mm. I mean, creation, not just the you know, uh, in seven days. I always laugh about the seven days of creation. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, I've been all focusing over the past 20 years on system thinking and so on. Okay, you hear from Genesis, on the first day, God did that. The second day, God did that. Third day, boy, I mean, based on, on the Bible, God is a linear thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, really, uh, when you look at, I think that science of the past 20 years or 50 years, it's discovering that the universe is not a great machine, it's a great thought. That the universe is beautiful, that its systems are everywhere. So, so I have a disconnect between how God is described as a linear thinker in the Bible, in Genesis, and at the same time, so yeah, God created everything, which is a system of systems and so on. So just a disconnect there between, between the two, um, but mm-hmm. it is the way it is. Um, but this idea of, uh, yeah, I mean, the mystics really changed my life. I mean, I, I want, I'm so grateful to Matthew Fox and a few others for bringing uh, such a Christian mystics. But then you also have the Muslim and Sufi mystics mm-hmm, also, mm-hmm. who essentially, this idea of rediscovering love, I mean, love, the beloved and the divine as a lover, right? I mean, where you have an intimate relationship with the divine and um, wow. You know, again, wow. Again, I say why. Again, because um, it sounds sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, if your mystical tradition that you follow or spiritual tradition does not bring you in awe and wonder with creation and the universe, then you may want to decide to switch to a different tradition. Yeah. Um, this idea of sin and guilt and so on, even sin, I mean, concept of sin, 
the mistranslation, I mean, sin comes from the Greek, it means to, mi to miss the mark. You know, I mean, the words that have been used, like uh, redemption, I mean, repent. I mean, mm. I mean in, mm. in, uh, in, uh, in Aramaic, it's metanoia, change your mind. Mm. John the Baptist was asking us to change our mind, not to repent and feel guilty and sinful and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's rediscovering that stuff that, wow, again, it's a wow factor that to me is so critical. And so the question of fine, discover that wow factor, how do you bring it into practice? Mm -hmm. How do you live with that wow factor on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. With your family, your friends, your work? You know, how do you bring into practice the action part? So contemplation on one side, yeah, wow. Action on the other side. So how does contemplation translate into action? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. These are such beautiful inquiries. It, um, I have to uh, admit that in my book, Why on Earth, there's a chapter called Wonder that is all about this experience of awe and cultivating this experience of awe and deepening in our our awareness our understanding of just how important this experience is to our humanity to our humanness exactly. and i'm really curious uh, your thoughts on how we bring more of that into the mainstream uh, maybe it's i'm reiterating my earlier question in a sense but I, I, I wonder about this quite a bit. How do we reintroduce, especially in the secular academic context where sort of all things as spiritual, and I give talks all around the country and internationally, sometimes in secular academic settings and sometimes in, in faith communities. And it's interesting, the language, the code switching, the different rules, so to speak, of what's permissible and what's not in these different communities. and. And I, I really, I really wonder how do we do more of this in the mainstream academic world? Oh, that's a good question. I've been wondering about that for the past 40 years. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, my next book is, is, is a title, it's called Engineering with Soul, S-O-U-L. Mm -hmm. um, love, soul, these are four-letter words that you never hear on campus. We hear other four-letter words, but not those. <laughs> so in fact, I, I remember bringing the concept of love into a class on sustainability and um, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, the, at the end of the semester, in fact, cosmology, I remember saying, okay, I was teaching sustainability to engineers, and the first two, three weeks was this the cosmology, rediscovering this concept of awe and wonder, and I used the book of Thomas Berry and Brian Swim, mm -hmm. The Universe Story. Mm -hmm. And I asked the students to read the universe story as they were reading fiction. And because it's a great story. You know, and had we really talking about war factor, the war of essentially the universe story. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 13.8 billion years, yeah. essentially. Whoa, everything, it's time I eat something. I'm thankful for it took 13.8 billion years last night, yesterday at rice, and I was looking at those grains of rice. It took 13.8 billion years for those grains of rice to be in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. It's not shabby, not bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, so again, I think you can rediscover this concept of war in a grain of rice, mm -hmm. in a flower, in your 
partner and the visage of your partner mm. and you know uh, in your children in your family everywhere and it's everywhere mm. so to me i really believe that miracles are not an exceptions they are the rules mm. in fact what we call miracles because oh my god something is happening good because we were not expecting it well it says something about us mm. right when when you turn the whole thing around and say well you're a miracle. I'm a miracle. Mm -hmm. He's a, my son is a miracle. My daughter is a miracle. Mm -hmm. The cat is a miracle. Everything is a miracle. Mm -hmm. But again, we're discovering the war. And how many, what, trillions of cells are right now in your body? Essentially, you know, each one doing, what, 10,000 chemical interactions with yeah. uh, every second, right? Yeah. <laughs> How can you not say war yeah, yeah. in something like that? So it's rediscovering this concept of awe and wonder in everything we do. Mm. I love it. It reminds me of, I think, wasn't it Einstein who said that you either experience life as if nothing was a miracle or as if everything was a miracle? I fully agree with, yeah. with, with him. There. I think that everything is a miracle. Yeah. In fact, it's, yeah. the, um, it's the rule rather than the exception. Yeah. And then your question is, well, where do you, where do you, where do you learn that stuff? I mean, um, not at the university, I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. In fact, the university is going to do the opposite. It's going mm -hmm. to, and that's based on what uh, Descartes and Newton told us about 300 years ago, essentially matters of the mind and matters of, of the soul are essentially completely separate. Mm -hmm. That's bullshit, excuse mm -hmm. me the term, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Complete, that's in we are rediscovering that the two are interacting, right? Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, academia is a very, um, to me, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm glad I'm finishing my 40 years of academic career because I cannot take it anymore. I mean, that to mm -hmm. me, I, in fact, I always joke that we should have a, uh, I should create AA Academic Anonymous where, you know, you say, I can, what are the 12, what's the 12-step program so that we can remove the academic nonsense out of, of an academician, right? Um, wow. And uh, Academic Anonymous, that would be, an, uh, that would be an interesting program. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, no, there's no soul. There's no soul on campus. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's the way I look at it. You walk around. I mean, God, you see some, so many miserable people out mm -hmm. there. You know, and on uh, well, the academic world, is, don't get me there because I'm, I'm uh, coming out of it um, with a lot of bitterness rather than... Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I need to change my mind, right? I can mm -hmm. look at it and say, okay, fine. 40 years of... Uh, 40 years of experience, I've learned some mm. stuff. So what am I going to do with when I grow up now? Okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, let me, I'll, I'll come to that question, what's next. But before going there, I, I want to acknowledge that uh, notwithstanding some of the critique you're offering right now of the, of the academic world, you've also had such a tremendous influence in it, and especially on uh, the discipline of engineering around the country and worldwide. And when you created Engineers Without Borders, what, about 20 years ago, is it? Give or take, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear um, uh, what caused you to create that in the first place. And also, please tell us about now how many thousands of folks are involved here in the United States and 
many more thousands worldwide. Can you give us an idea of what the organization looks like today? But first, tell mm -hmm. us about how it got started. How it got started was really here, actually, in this house. Mm. And in uh, 1997, we needed some landscaping down in the backyard, and I picked up a landscaping company from Longmont, out of the phone book, the Yellow Pages. You have to be careful what, about... What are Yellow Pages? Well, <laughs> so no, just kidding. You don't remember the yellow pages. Well, they were yellow pages at one time in the history of mankind, and um, so I selected a company at random. You have to be careful about random processes because they can change your life. Yeah. And then three people came uh, a few days later. They were all from Belize, and they, all three of them uh, were working in that company in Longmont, and mm. they told me about the needs of Mayan Indians, and they told me, why not you come over and help us? So two years went back, went by 1999, when I got an email from one of them and say, hey, we were in your backyard a couple of years ago. You mentioned you could help us in, in developing a, a curriculum for young Mayan kids in technology and yeah. STEM. And then so I said, yes, so I went over there and uh, visited a bunch of Mayan villages, including the village of San Pablo, and came across essentially um, uh, the village, really poor, you know. Um, and when I, it really struck me. Yeah. Um, this idea of being of assistance to others was not new to me. I had done volunteer work in, uh, at the Boulder Shelter for the homeless. So actually, being of service to others has um, always been part of my DNA. Mm. But I think that uh, that trip to Belize was kind of a convergence of two things, being of service on one side and engineering on the other side. Yeah. So it was a very singular point in my life, let's mm. put it that way. Mm. So I mentioned that to the students at CU, I was teaching a class on engineering geology, and the students said, well, we want to be part of it, we want to be part of it. So 10, 15 students signed up, um, we had a technician who came, um, also, and uh, we went over there, collecting data, and the students were super excited, super excited about the project. It was a water project. Huh. Failed two times, three times actually, until uh, different solutions came up. But essentially, when I asked the students, why are you so excited about it? And they say, well, they say, we want more meaningful engineering education. Mm -hmm. And that, that concept of meaningful, is something that have that really struck me. I said, how come you, you take those classes? You know, uh, they should be meaningful to you. And say, no, no, no. Yeah. We're tired of doing those problems at the end of chapter five, and I said, I'm tired of grading them anyway. <laughs> and then so, um, so that's how that was the essentially the the birth of engineers without borders. Yeah. It was driven by the students. The students wanted to do something different learn engineering in the field rather than in books. Mm -hmm. And then so Engineers Without Borders exploded and it was not, um, you know, startups for the people who are watching this program and who have done startups, they know quite well and you know quite well too. Iran, it's doing a startup is not easy. Right. Um, most people essentially, you know, what, 10% of startups essentially make across the big valley of death there, essentially it's yeah. called. Um, but you keep on going, you keep on going. And that's the beauty about America is that here you can keep failing. It's not 
it's okay. Mm-hmm. Keep on going. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't talk about failing anymore. I talk about les- learning lessons. Le- lessons. You learn. You don't fail. You learn lessons. Yep. Or you succeed. Absolutely. I've got a few of those under my belt. Yeah, you know quite <laughs> one. But it's painful. It's not an yeah, easy. Yeah, it's yeah. not an easy journey. No. And, but the students were always there to remind me of that the journey was worth continuing. Yeah. And uh, so now we have about, what, 17,000 members in the United States. I would say half and half. Half students, half professionals. The students become professionals and they stay in the, um, in the organization. The headquarters are in Denver. I don't run the organization um, anymore. I'm just one voice on the board. But um, yeah, we have helped uh, what, two and a half million, three million people in the world. Um, working in 48 different countries. Um, that was before COVID. We cut down after COVID, not trying to get back on the saddle. Um, but um, this idea of to be of service. And, and I look at it and I say, well, why is it that those students were so excited about being of service to others? There was nothing for them to do. If they wanted to be of service, yeah, you could do, you build a concrete canoe or mm-hmm. you build something like that. But the idea of learning engineering by going to the field, by talking to some real people, providing essentially clean water to people. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean um, it's amazing or providing elect- basic electricity to people. You should see how I mean, people just provide one light bulb. Mm-hmm. Like right now in this room, we have, I don't know, 20 light bulbs, some of you, but just to have one light bulb. Yeah. And I remember those faces in Afghanistan when in Kabul, when they brought light to uh, electricity to Kabul, where there was not a lot of electricity, but the kids would go onto the street lights and do their homework assignments at night. Wow, mm. desperate to learn something, right? Um, I don't see too many uh, high school kids and students at CU uh, doing homework assignments like that, but um, there was something really special in bringing. It is something special in bringing essentially water, in water, electricity, to um, food, um, yeah. to, to to communities around the world, and uh, um, and that's what I want to do more when I grow up. When I'm going to retire at the end of this semester, yeah. what am I going to do? I mean, I usually tell people TBD, right? Yeah. Be determined, but certainly to be of service. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That being of service to me is, if you remove that. And I die. I mean, I really need yeah. to make it's part of my DNA. Yeah. Um, you pay me to be of service, fine. You don't pay me to be of service, fine too. Mm-hmm. So the money is not, it's not, it's not key at all. Yeah. Of yeah. course, it's nice to get your airline ticket paid, but yeah. But just to be of service, mm. I think in itself, it's um, to bring your soul into, again, engineering with soul. I think to be engineers without borders is a good way of expressing that concept where you bring the mind, body, soul into your work, mm. right? Into helping um, a human being there who um, now has clean water, has a little bit of hope, uh, creating essentially small um, businesses. I like the term doing well by doing good, right? I mean, yeah. um, we often you have people, the do-good people, the do-well people, I think the um, the challenge is to, to be in the middle there, doing yeah. well by doing good. Yeah. Then it's uh, it's an interesting journey. It's yeah. no longer a job, it's uh, 
what you, Fox and, and Thomas Berry, talk about the great work. What's your work? Not your job. Yeah. What's your work that keeps you going? Yeah. Right? Where you wake up in the morning and say, wow, what am I going to do with my day? Am I going to improve the world? Am I going to improve myself, my family, and so on? That's work. Great work. Mm -hmm. I do mm -hmm. a beautiful book to read the great work. Yeah. Compare your 9 to 5 p.m. job day and yeah. two hours of driving in the morning, two hours of driving at night, okay, okay. Some people have to do that, I guess. Yeah. But what's your great work? Mm. Right? Yeah, so so wonderful to reflect on that. Another another inquiry. I want to ask just to round out when my ability to write a, a synopsis of our discussion together. You mentioned seventeen thousand members in the United States. Do you do you know how many are involved in the global network of engineers without no, borders? Because now about eighty different engineers without borders groups around the world. I did not create all of them. I've helped yeah. create actually some of them. Yeah. Um, but the idea is to create a network of young people and also senior people, professionals yeah. who can yeah. be of service to humanity in different um, countries around the world. Um, there are about 80 groups. If you look at Engineers Without Borders International, you have a list there of all the different groups. Some of them are students only. Some of them are professionals only, like in our case we are both, you can do uh, students and professionals. Yeah. The professional chapters tend to take bigger projects, it could be a bridge construction for instance, or a dam or something. Uh, student chapters take, could be a rainwater catchment system, electrical system, <coughs> sanitation system, mm -hmm. something usually smaller. Yeah, okay, yeah that's, that's interesting and that's helpful. Um, while we're talking about some of those technological uh, solutions and, and infrastructure, let me ask you this, notwithstanding some of the concerns and critiques we, we might have and, and share regarding some of the technologies being developed right now, what, uh, is, is there a technology or a, a family of technologies that are uh, making s uh, significant advances right now that most excite you in terms of the well-being of humanity worldwide? I don't think it's the technology itself, it's mm -hmm. what you do with it, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, you know, uh, I've been really interested over the past few years in the, the field of uh, relationship between engineering and peace. Yeah. And um, there's a group in Washington, D.C. called Peace Tech. Um, Peace Tech? Uh, Peace Tech Lab. Uh, that is, was created by a good friend of mine, uh, Sheldon Himmelfarb. You can go peacetechlab.org, I guess, and you'll see that yeah, what's the role of technology in bringing peace into the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, technology can do, it's not the technology itself, it can divide people or it can bring people together, right? Yeah. So peacetechlab is to look at um, using technology for the betterment of mankind, mm -hmm. right? Um, a vision we have, and, and a vision that I, I uh, talk about a lot is, it's this concept of peace industrial complex. Can we create a peace industrial complex in the world that essentially um, competes with the war industrial complex that was created pretty much 100 years ago? Yeah. Imagine, uh, you know, I would imagine people who contribute to the war industrial complex. I don't think that those people are mean. No. They don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to kill people. Yeah. But they make money. Yeah. 
So imagine, can we create a peace industrial complex where people make more money in contributing to peace than in contributing to, to war? And the answer, it's a, it's a no-brainer. Right. You have 8 billion customers every day. Right. 8 billion customers who need clean water, they need food, they need transportation, they need uh, communication, they need health, access to health, and what have you there. If you look at water filtration system, show me water filtration system today that is affordable, reliable, that doesn't break down essentially after you know two days or one week or so on, mm. and that can be essentially scaled at the global level. We don't have that. Mm. And you find systems that are about 20 bucks, 50 bucks. Oh, you can go to New York, I can go to REI and buy a system there um, and that you know, gives us clean water whatsoever. It's not, that's not sustainable. Those, those are not, there's no way a small community of uh, people who make a dollar a day and two, day, two dollars a day yeah. can afford such system. How come we don't have, yes, how come people don't make money in creating a water filtration system that are good for 8 billion people, mm -hmm. right? Something about electricity, something about um, food distribution. We have plenty of food on our planet. We have plenty of water on our planet. Yeah. I think the problem is water management as yeah, such. Absolutely. Food management, that is not good. Right. Energy management, that is not good. It's the management part. It has nothing to do with the resources yeah. themselves. Yeah. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. Side uh, side note on this and data point that I find to be really uh, uh, impactful that of the food we grow each year, we waste a third. Yeah. And uh, the carbon emissions from that food decomposing often in landfill situations uh, is enough that if it were a nation state, it would be the third most emitting country in the world uh, greenhouse gas emissions, just second, uh, just following China and the United States. So we have plenty of food. Oh, we have, we have 50 percent more food than people are eating currently. You mentioned one third, but I read 40 percent. Yeah, maybe it's you know, up to 40. There was yeah. a sign that see you that 40 percent of the food that we get is wasted, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, water, same thing. How much water is wasted because pipes are not are leaking everywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, that makes absolutely no sense. You mentioned, you know, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions because of that wasted food. Yeah, it makes, makes absolutely no sense. But it has to do with the management yeah. of the resources, yeah. not the resources themselves. Like the technology, I mean, I can, I can bring a nice pen, you can bring, that pen can hurt somebody, or you can write a beautiful poem about it. That has right. nothing to do with the pen in itself, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that we are right now with the folks at Peace Tech Lab, uh, my colleague Sheldon has developed a, uh, an interesting uh, collaboration with folks at Oxford, this idea of misinformation. In fact, they are planning to create a, um, you know, you heard of the IPCC for climate change. They are developing essentially with funding from several foundations, the equivalent to IPCC on misinformation. Yeah, fascinating. Right, I mean, because misinformation, disinformation, bad faith information kills people. Absolutely. It's actually very dangerous. Yeah. That's thing, again, like technology, information in mm. itself is fine if you use it wisely. Yeah. Right? 
And then so misinformation was looking at AI a few days ago, chat GBT. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you can have, you ask the questions and that the computer essentially answers essentially everything you need to know. The question is, is what you read is, is true or not? I mean, someone could control that, that package of information and misuse it completely. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it should, if you have tried ChatGPT, starting it was released in November of 2022. Yeah. Ask, write a book. In fact, I just finished my book there. Um, what is the first draft of it? And I, and I bumped into ChatGPT. Yeah. And well, I, I can ask ChatGPT write a book about um, I don't know. The one I'm working on is climate security, peace, and sustainability. It's going to write something. 1.0 introduction, 2.0. It writes just table. Ask you can do it. A table of content. Um, you can ask um, write a book on permaculture. Yeah. And and that uh, AI will write a book. It may not be true whatever it says, but it's just a matter of time. Um, when AI is going to be more intelligent than uh, human beings for two reasons. Number one, AI increases in capacity and human beings are essentially getting dumber and dumber. Mm. So, <laughs> so, the, so that singular point, they call that the singular point, is going to happen sooner than later because of the dumbification of humans. Imagine students now can, can go to AI and say, okay, I have a paper that is due tomorrow. Uh, write a paper on permaculture. Mm -hmm. They turn it in, and they get a good grade. Have they learned anything? No. Mm. But you know, so the academic world will have to change. Yeah. What we are seeing today is going to make some big changes in how we are educating um, young people and how we make decisions in the world. Yeah. And, but again, going back to our discussion earlier, how do you bring wisdom in there? Yeah. Well, speaking of AI, I'll take this opportunity to uh, remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Bernard Amade, the founder of Engineers Without Borders. And of course, AI is a, a thread, a theme that I uh, deal with in my uh, new novel, Veriditas, which is a term coined by the mystic Hildegard von Bingen that Bernard mentioned earlier. And in the arc of the story, there's this, uh, there's this emerging wisdom that takes us from the AI of artificial intelligence to the AI of authentic intelligence that comes to us through the ages from the esoteric traditions, the traditions and teachings of various luminaries and of indigenous cultures and wisdom. Um, Bernard has a copy it here a book, of Reditas. I'm reading it, by the way, Aaron. And as I mentioned to you before, I don't want it to end. Um, because I would be sad the day when I reach the last page, which is page, I don't know, somewhere. Five something. 500 something. It's a page turner. 542. It's yeah. a great page turner. But there's so much information in there. Um, I do believe Aaron is a Renaissance man. And they are very rare when you meet so Renaissance people, men and women, of course, um, on this planet. And I can count about maybe a handful of people like him who um, are exploring new ways of thinking. 
um, and it's such a deeply rooted in wisdom, uh, wisdom tradition, and that to me, um, wisdom tradition from the West and wisdom tradition from indigenous cultures as well. So. Uh, um, if you have not, uh, it sounds like a commercial, but if you have not read this book, you may want to read it because it's a great um, page turner. Um, I read it before going to sleep. It doesn't put me to sleep, but uh, it's a great way of uh, relaxing and, um, uh, and um, finishing the day. That's wonderful, yeah. And if, if you would like to get a copy of the book, we have them in print form as well as ebook digital form you can go to veriditasbook.com it's v-i-r-i-d-i-t-a-s book.com and of course i, I want to take the opportunity as we're uh, discussing we could say this episode's brought to you by veriditas today i want to be sure to thank our supporters um, our ambassadors our monthly contributors we have many folks giving on a monthly basis to the why on earth community to make this podcast series possible as well as the other outreach work gatherings and uh, resources that we provide to the communities around the world if you haven't yet joined our giving program and you would like to uh, you can go to whyonearth.org and click on the donate button and set it up for any amount um, if you'd like to give it the 33 dollar a month level or greater we will be happy to ship you a jar of the Waylay Waters biodynamically and regeneratively grown hemp-infused aromatherapy salts that are wonderful um, as a thank you gift. So check that out, set that up again. Thanks to everybody for uh, your support who are already part of the program. And, and Bernard, I, uh, I gotta say that right now, um, the Why on Earth community is, is working on our uh, five-year strategic vision and we see there are several things we can do uh, in collaboration with many other organizations out there um, uh, to have even more positive impact in the world. And uh, yeah, with that as a uh, mention, I want to I want to ask, you know, what are you uh, foreseeing as you kind of quote unquote grow up here with your upcoming uh, graduation? Oh, I guess it's a retirement from uh, forty years of of being a professor and. You know, hopefully we can plant the seeds of uh, us doing more collaboration in the, in the coming Maybe months and years. we can write a book together, but writing yeah, a book yeah. takes a lot of effort, as you know. Yeah. But I think that um, what I'm looking for more is getting involved in some, in some projects and, and, and learn. Mm-hmm. Learn from, especially learn from the native traditions. Yeah. To me that um, not, it's, it, it should not be, it should not, it's not sentimentalism. Of course, native traditions had their own problems as well. But what can we learn? Where do we learn about sustainability today? I mean, there are two places, in my opinion, learning from the native traditions and learning from nature. And the whole bit of biomimicry, talking about it before. What can we learn from nature? Nature is, what, a 4.6 billion years experiment in sustainability. If it's not sustainable by now, you know, uh, then we might as well, um, uh, you know, quit. Uh, so what can we learn from, from nature? And that require humility, that require wisdom, that require saying, I don't understand, you know, um, teach me, tell me. Um, it requires sitting down and being silent and being quiet. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's uh, also requires uh, being able to listen, which in my opinion is a big problem in our society today. Um, to be able to listen, 
and um, and live in humility. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean living in a cave, but understanding that, well, you know, um, uh, we can do well by doing good. We can, we all have, you want to change the world, as Mahatma Gandhi talks about, and you want to change the world, you need to be the change that you want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm-hmm. And the thing that, um, and that, the answer to that question is, is not, it's different for you and me, right? But yeah. we all contribute into something good. Yeah. Right? So you have 8 billion people on our planet, but ultimately it's taking that homework assignment. What is the gift that you only bring, you bring, that you only bring to, to, to the world? Mm. Yeah. And sitting down, nothing that I urge you, all your people listening to this to go to a coffee place or tea place and say, okay, what's my mission statement? You can change it as many times as you want, but we all have a mission statement. What's your mission statement? What is the gift that you only can give to the world? And the best one time I was in Kathmandu, and I was in front of a Buddhist monk, and I asked him, what's the meaning of life? And he told me, chocolate. Chocolate? What the heck? And he, what he did, he went to Siri and ask that question on the phone. Holy and sure enough, I, I did that one time after asking that same question <laughs> 10 times, I got chocolate too. Oh my goodness. Now, but what's the meaning of life? I think the best answer to that is, is to find your gift. Yeah. And what's the purpose of life is to share that gift. And that to me, I'm very content with, with, with those definitions. Mm-hmm. To find your gift and to share it with others. Yeah. Amen and aho to that. Out. Yeah. Well, Bernard, thank you so oh, much. It's, we're going to, of course, uh, take a few minutes to record our behind the scenes uh, segment that is available to our ambassadors and our global advisory board. So if you're interested in becoming an ambassador, again, you can go to whyonearth.org and engage with us there. Um, and so, yeah, before we before we sign off from our main podcast episode, Bernard, and, and yeah, let's write something together. And, and, and when you're... But let's do something together. Let's do something more, more together, absolutely. Writing is easy, doing is more difficult. Absolutely, and when your forthcoming book, Climate Security, Peace and Sustainability, comes out, you know, it'd be wonderful to podcast again on that. But uh, we've got a lot to do, Bernard, and I'm looking forward to... Uh, exploring ways we can collaborate both sure. in action and in, in writing and uh, and before we sign off I just I want to invite you if there's anything else you'd like to add and share with our audience and, and thank you so much for taking You're the welcome. time to visit with no, us I, this one, I, go back, I want to go back to Aaron's book in there you meet some very interesting people and if you ask Aaron if those people are real or not he will answer yes some are real Mm-hmm. And, and I'm glad they are real because I want to meet them. And, and some, of course, it's a fiction book uh, uh, created uh, you know, in, his, in, his, in his brain. Mm-hmm. But um, read that book and, and let us know what you think of it. Um, plus, he gives you the large longitude and latitude and longitude of all the places he has visited. So nothing prevents you on weekends when you're looking for something to do to go to those sites and meet the interesting people he's uh, talking about. That's right. I really, I really like that. It's, uh, it's not just fiction, it's practical fiction. 
Yeah, that's what they did. It's a new genre. Yeah, there are a lot of nuggets and treasures there for folks to discover. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank, Thank you for writing that book. Yeah, my pleasure, Bernard. And, and someone has a lot of money, he has to make a movie out of it. Yeah. I think a great movie can be made out of this book. Um, maybe a three-part series or four-part series of, of Veriditas. I did not know that Veriditas was from uh, Hildegard of Bingen. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's a term she created, a Latin-inspired term that means the green healing energy of the divine that flows through plants. Yeah, that's Pagerics of alchemy. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, that's, um, and Hildegard of Bingen was practicing of a group of Beguines and the women who decided they could not join the church because they could not be ordained. But they created their own um, group of women. I think you see them in Belgium, you see them in Germany. Uh, in Bruges, if you have to go to Bruges, there's a hermitage there where all the women decided to live an austere type of life with humility and so on. But they were not ordained by the Catholic Church. So um, something to, to explore. Yeah, it's interesting. I know she also uh, corresponded and was friends with uh, Bernard de Clairvaux, who yep. was one of the yep. founders of Knights Templar. That's right. So a uh, very interesting history there, very interesting person, Hildegard von Bingen. Yeah, and again, this idea of finding energy through plants and finding wisdom, it kind of ties well with this idea of original blessing. Yeah. It's positive. Yeah. It's awe, it's beauty. You know, it's rediscovering the sacred through um, everything you touch, see, hear, um, every day. So beautiful. And as is said in the Hopi Elder Speaks, may everything we do now be done in a manner of sacred ceremony. Uh, Absolutely. Thank, thank you so much, Bernard, yeah. for, for this wonderful conversation oh. and for all, all that, that you're it. doing and have done for our world. Oh. You do too, and we all do our part, right? right? Yes, absolutely. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org backslash support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code whyonearth, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.